while they're coming up here, I will say uh, that it's beautifully structured um, how church camp goes. There's like a lot of time for activities and fun stuff. Um, like Eric did fishing and there was bracelet making and crafts and games and all kinds of fun things like that. Um, but there's also some serious time where the kids can make personal connections with the counselors and each other. Um, and there's worship where we could spend time with just ourselves and the Lord and the music and it was wonderful. Um, and so in that time, that me personally and Eric, actually two years ago, we made a connection with a little girl and her dad, she said, my dad was a great Christian man, but he started drinking alcohol and all of a sudden he left their family uh, for his addiction. And so at that time, Eric and I, we just made a connection with her and we loved on her and we remembered her in prayer and such after we left. Um, and this time she came, she hadn't skipped a year, but she came this time and, uh, I said hi to her in the lunch line and she was like, Oh, I didn't know you remembered me. I was like, of course I remembered you. I love you. Um, and so later that evening in worship, she came and she said, Amber, can we talk? And this happened to be on the anniversary of my dad's death. Um, but we went outside and we're talking and she said, um, because of liver failure, my dad died in February. And so I just thought that was kind of amazing. I was able to cry with her and feel her pain with her. And that was just powerful. Um, and we are able to pray and uh, talk about hope for the future. Um, and so that was my experience at church camp this year, that and the amazing worship. Um, I'll warn you guys, our kids are on fire right now. And I would encourage you guys to, to fan that flame in them. You are, you are there. You are who they look up to, you know, and they want to see that fire in you as well. So just allow that fire to reflect off of you and just help them to, to build it up. And um, I think that's about all I've got. Uh, anybody else? Hello. Well, this is my first time at camp, so I didn't really know what to expect at Lake Salatiska. And so um, I spent a lot of the first day getting lost a little bit around the camp, but Amber and Gina and Leveda and um, Teresa kept me in line. But um, Tim and I have, have had the opportunity to, to do music at a lot of different camps. This one is, is different, and um, as soon as I got there, I was impressed by how much they focus on um, discipleship. And... Um, in the small group time, how much the kids share and support one another. And I also had the opportunity to be on the worship team, which was um, amazing. And to see, be on the stage and see the kids coming up and worshiping and praying and supporting one another, it was just, um, I felt very honored to be there. And um, I had planned to leave a little bit early because the women's conference was on Saturday and I was going to lead some music for that. But I had a girl who, um, 
she had made a profession of faith, and she asked me if I would be there that last day um, because she was a little nervous about talking about her faith because her parents weren't believers. And so she said, you're going to be here tomorrow, right? And I said, yes, I will be there. I just couldn't leave. And um, I felt very blessed to be a part of it and to be able to pour into the kids' lives and to um, encourage them and hear their stories. And um, I feel blessed that I'm a part of a church who supports and sends kids to the camp, and it was just a really great week. So. This also was my first time at camp this year, and I really didn't know what to expect at all. Um, and it was a helping hand, so I wasn't teaching any classes or anything. I was just kind of there to support. And probably like Caitlin, the first day I was kind of feeling like, why am I here? <laughs> but um, I, got, I saw God move in amazing ways. In my prayer time, I usually pray that God would give me lots of opportunities to share the gospel. And sometimes I miss it, and... Sometimes I'm looking for adults and not necessarily for kids. So I was amazed at how God just opened up doors here and there. There I had a connection with one of the boys there, and he, he came to me. Well, there was an opportunity at one point for if anyone would like to be a Christian. He looked at me right away and said, I want that. And he was eager to pray with me, and he gave his life to Christ. And following that... Um, I had the opportunity to connect with a girl that is deciding to be on campus outreach at USI. And we are familiar with that ministry because we used to live in Evansville. And I was so excited to hear what's going on with her and how she's going to pour into the lives of um, other college students. And then we decided to pair with her in that and to help support her. And then um, at lunch one day I had, it was a group of like um, three Kids like in their 20s, when well, they're not kids, you know, young adults. Um, just asking me, like, what's your testimony? And so I was able to share with them and just open up about what God had done in my life. Um, and then, if that wasn't enough, um, God blessed me with being able to pray with my daughter to receive Jesus. I don't know if she'll talk, but... Um, like so many of our kids, they have the facts of salvation in their head. They know the truth of the gospel. But they have to take that step and say, I want Jesus as my Savior. And Clara did this weekend. And I was also able to pray with one other little girl, too, to receive Christ. So if God has moved in your heart at all to go to camp or anything else that comes up, I just say oh, be obedient and do it. And even if it doesn't look like there's going to be an opportunity, keep your eyes open because he will. He's going to show you what to do and when. Thanks. It's very hard to follow up by all those. <laughs> um, this is my fourth year going to camp. Um, I'm hooked for sure. I love it. Um, this year I went for senior camp only. So I knew walking in that, um, you know, I was going to be working with teenagers and uh, I know with that comes a lot of heavy stuff um, every night during worship we as counselors um, after the sermon we step to the side and we're there to counsel those kids when they need it and um, first night comes and this girl comes to me and just 
pours out this heart-wrenching story of what's going on in her life. And night two comes, and she comes back, and I hear more. Night three comes, and another girl comes. It's the same girl that, um, that Amber knows, and it just broke me. It broke me. I, I said, I can't, I can't listen to another one, and I... I as she's telling me the story, I'm just weeping with her because it's not fair that these kids have to go through this and the alcoholism that's taking their parents from them and the brokenness in their homes. And like I said, it just broke me. And I went back in to the chapel just feeling completely depleted And I knew I needed to spend some time with God because I myself had had many struggles through this year and had struggled with depression and many hard things. And I thought, God, I can't. I have nothing left in me to give these kids. And I just went to the altar and just broke and prayed. And all of a sudden, I felt, just like Amber's doing, I felt these hands on my back and they just kept coming and they kept coming and these as I finished up my prayer time and I turn around and look and there are these young girls only 12 13 14 and they were there and they were lifting me up in prayer and they were encouraging me and loving on me and filling me back up and to help me finish that week, which was good because as I go back to my cabin, I'm, they're all waiting for me to give their devotion for the night. <laughs> and then after that, and it keeps coming in the waves and the girls, can I talk to you? Can I share with you? And it's just, there's just so much, so much hurt. Um, I, I want to brag on some of the kids from our church. I won't go by name, but I saw a lot of uh, kids step up and, and were great encouragers to the other kids and praying with them. And um, I just want to, you guys to know that your your money has, that you've given for these kids to go and for us counselors to go is a blessing. And we need to just keep encouraging our kids. There is There's great revival there and it can come into our church as well and this is our future of our church so we want to keep supporting them and in prayer um i don't know if any other adults have anything to share but i want to kind of open the mic if any of the kids feel led to share about their week as well Well, as you can tell, I'm not a kid, (laughs) but I don't see them moving. I've been going for many, 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 many years, and um, camp is not something that you can uh, see in a picture, watch in a video, and hear people talk about. It's something you have to experience for yourself. And I have to admit, it's not for everyone. It really isn't, because it's a totally different kind of atmosphere. It's an atmosphere of spirit and worship and lots of Bible study and discipleship, just constant. We eat a lot, it seems like, as well. 
but to watch these, I've been able to watch kids grow and grow, and now they're counselors, and they have so many memories, things I forget about that they'll come back and say, you remember when, you remember when, you, you know, you prayed with me for this, but I have the college kids, well, I call them college kids, they just graduated and they're moving, they're starting college. We had eight of them this year. They have so much anxiety about leaving home. Some of them are going far away. Some of them are staying close by, but they're still nervous about it. So I would encourage you to pray for our college kids. We have several here in our own church, and you probably do within your family. But this fire that they're talking about, um, the world will drown it because the world is so dark. So I encourage you as a family member, a friend, do whatever you can to pray for them and not put out that fire and help them to grow in discipleship. And that's something that we need to see more of within our own church, I think. I prayed and prayed, and I've had a lot of you pray for Ashton. Ashton just graduated, and I had the opportunity to talk with her some more and uh, pray with her and for her to talk to me because she was also in my family time as well and next to me in the bunk and then in worship. And she's been struggling with her salvation because I was with her when she was saved at about the age of eight. And sometimes when you're saved at a really young age, things happen and life moves. And she started doubting that, and she was not sure about it. And I never really said anything much to her, but I wanted her to feel that brokenness and that part of her to want to get back to where she needs to be. And I kept telling her that God didn't leave you. He's always there. He never leaves us. He never leaves us. And she and I were able to um, pray together. She, I told her, it's up to you. You're an adult now. You pray. You say the words. What's on your heart? And she did. And I just want to praise the Lord for that opportunity and all the, the mothers and the kids that get to pray with their children and any of you that get to pray with your children or your grandchildren. It's such an awesome opportunity. Just keep praying for us because we've been challenged to continue to pray for each other. We've been challenged to not let the darkness of the world mess things up for us. And I know it's, things happen, but just keep praying for us and help us to stay where we need to be is to stay strong. work up the courage to do this so I don't really have like a gigantic story or anything I just decided might as well come up here you know I just worked it up right beside Silas um, so I had the opportunity to go up to the altar and pray with a couple friends and witnessed a couple people get saved and rededicated and it was one of the greatest moments of my life and I would never trade anything for it and I also was struggling with my own little issue, and Silas there came up and prayed for me at the altar, and it was one of the greatest moments of my life, too. And I got to meet a great many people in my family and made a lot of really good friends. And camp is just this great, enjoyable place, and I would never trade anywhere else for it. And I wish I could go back again this year before next year and just keep on going back and having that same great time that I did. Thank you.
so just to finish up, I wanted to let you guys know that at junior camp, we had 10 salvations. And at senior camp, we had seven salvations and three rededications. Uh, God was working mightily in us, and we are going to continue. Am I right? Best news ever. <laughs> Best news ever. Okay. <laughs> Well, I'm going to thank, ask you to take a, a Bible this morning. If you don't have one uh, with you, there should be one underneath the chair you're sitting in or close to you. Matthew chapter 15, if you'd turn there in the New Testament, the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 15. Please, if you would, stand with me as we honor the reading of the Word of God. There's no other book like this. This is not just a book. It is God's Word, God speaking to us. Let's, let's uh, remind ourselves of it and uh, by just standing right now to hear our King Speak to us. Matthew chapter 15, I'll begin reading at verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Verse 28, then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Verse 29, Jesus went on from there. And walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on a mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put him at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled uh, healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Verse 32, then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. Verse 35, and directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Megadon. I'm going to pray again. We desperately need to understand what your word says, Lord. Not to impose our own meaning on it, but to understand what truth it is that you are communicating about yourself. So Lord, please, please teach us. Please teach us about the nature of what great faith is, what saving faith is, and about your desire for all to have this saving faith, to repent and believe in Jesus. 
so that the God of Israel might be glorified. That we might say he's not just the God of Israel, but he's our God and Father. And we might leave this place and be willing to tell others how that could be true for them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, I mentioned uh, before the youth and the parents, adults gave testimony a while ago that our uh, kids went to camp and they're wonderful kids and they're stinky kids too. Now, I don't mean that in a derogatory way, so let me clarify. <laughs> you know about body odor, right? With kids, first of all, <laughs> in cabins for a few days. When uh, my son got home yesterday, he came home. We'd sent some of his stuff in a big old black garbage bag. And we opened it up and immediately I could smell this smell that smelled like... Uh, What's them tater chips, honey? Salt and vinegar potato chips. Because the kids, when they cleaned up cabins, thought his trash bag, his bag was a trash bag, and they threw trash in his bag. And so he come home, his clothes came home with stinking, but we're taking care of that. But I imagine as Aiden came up here and testified briefly that some of you kids, man, if you go to camp right now, you'd take off. You might even take off walking. You know, uh, to Lake Salatiska is about two hours from here, a two-hour drive. It's about 114 miles. And I looked up on Google Maps, and it, if you were to walk to camp next year, because after talking to Bo Belt, taking kids to camp and having to stop at McDonald's three times, I think we're going to have you kids walk to camp next year. But I imagine you had such a good time, you're ready to do it. So if you were to walk to camp, Googling it on Google Maps for 114 miles, then about, that, about the pace that they timed, they, would, they estimated it would take you 31 hours and 48 minutes to walk to camp. 31 hours and 48 minutes without a break, without any stops, without stopping for the night to sleep. So if you did stop for the night to sleep and you're carrying your bags with you and, and resting along the way, I imagine it might take you three or four days. It could anyway. All right, you might be so excited to get there a lot sooner. Now, the reason I say that this morning is it reminds me in this passage of Scripture about something's going on. So I want to show you a map. If I can get that map to pull up. If not, I'll just explain to you. Yeah, there it is. So this map up here, if you look, um, if you look down there towards the bottom where that, that blue lake-looking thing is, all right, that's the Dead Sea. There's a star right above it, and that's Jerusalem, all right? And then if you look up at the next blue, blue body of water, that's the Sea of Galilee, and the Sea of Galilee is where Jesus did most of his ministry. Most of his miracles and things were in the Sea of Galilee. And so where Jerusalem is, up to where the Sea of Galilee is, all, that's, all of that was where the land of Israel was, the promised land. That's where the Jewish people lived. And so Jesus is doing a lot of his miracles there, especially in that land of Galilee. And there was a place where he had went called Gennesaret on the west side of that Sea of Galilee after he had fed 5,000. And we read here about how he fed 4,000. You realize there were two miraculous feedings in Scripture, one of 5,000 and one of 4,000 that we read in here in chapter 15 this morning. So that was, that was uh, where after he fed the 5,000, he went to Gennesaret. And from there... We're going to read where he went to Tyre and Sidon up north of that in a moment. But the reason I mention that is down there where Jerusalem is, that star down here by that first body of water, all the way up to, uh, to where Sea of Galilee is, that's about 114, 120 miles. And remember how, many, how long it's going to take you to walk that far. And remember back in that day, they didn't have cars and buses and trains. They, they, they walked unless they were really rich and had camels and so forth. Well, I want you to look in your Bible in verse 1 of chapter 15 and notice something. It says, Then Pharisees and scribes came to, came to Jesus from where? They came from Jerusalem. And, and where was Jesus at? Well, if you look back in chapter 14, and I won't take the time to 
show you all that. He was in Gennesaret. He was at the Sea of Galilee, 114 miles away. So these Pharisees, these religious leaders that Jesus had came for, they came 114 miles. They walked probably three or four days to go see Jesus. And when they got there, you know what they did? They asked him, why are your disciples not washing their hands before they eat? Now that's an interesting question. We think we ought to wash our hands before we eat. But they were talking about a ceremonial, ceremonial washing of their hands, a religious activity that they felt was another link in the chain that made them right with God. Another rung in the ladder. You do this, and yeah, we're, we're good people. We're right with God. God's going to accept us one day on the day of judgment. And so they questioned the disciples. They were concerned. They went all the way from Jerusalem, all the way, three or four days. If you want to go that far, you've got to really want to get there, right? Just like if you want to go to camp, you'd be willing to walk. Well, they really wanted to get there, and they wanted to ask him these questions and put him on the spot. They were curious, but they were also envious. Because Jesus' fame, as it says in John or Matthew 14, 1, his fame was spreading. Even Herod had heard about the fame of Jesus in Matthew 14, 1. So... They were envious and they were jealous and they were looking for opportunities to kind of put a, put a stop to this Jesus or at least find out more about him anyway. And when they got there, they asked him about unclean hands and Jesus said, you know what? Not so concerned about unclean hands, I'm concerned about unclean hearts. And if you're reading that passage of scripture in his interaction with the Pharisees when, he got, when they got to Jerusalem, he said, you know what? You want your traditions more than you want the word of God. And he gave them an example of that, how they dishonored their parents. And he said, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. And he said, your hearts, you draw near to me with your lips, just like that prophet Isaiah said, but your hearts are far from me. So as a result, if you look in, chapter, in verse 21, what did Jesus do in verse 21? After his interaction with those religious leaders who had walked three or four days possibly, verse 21 says, Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. So back up here to the map, you see that blue lake on the top, Sea of Galilee? That's where Jesus was. That's where the Pharisees were at. That's where he called them hypocrites. Well, after he had that interaction, he withdrew from there and he went to Tyre and Sidon. That's at the northwest corner of the map. You see that? Tyre and Sidon. Now let me tell you about Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon was not part of Israel. This was Gentile territory. Jesus had crossed the border. He had never went outside Gentile ter or into Gentile territory before. Never went outside the Jewish territory before. Never did any miracles among the Gentiles outside of Israel before. But now he goes to Tyre and Sidon. If we were to walk to Henderson, Kentucky, the other side of Evansville, it would take you about 20 hours. I forgot what the statistic, what it was, Google said. So that's how far Jesus walked. Probably took him about two days to walk to Tyre and Sidon. And when he got there, he healed one person and left. Now what in the world's going on in this passage of scripture? What is it that we're supposed to be learning? Why did he go so far? Here Jesus was going into Gentile territory. Now we assume sometimes, I assume anyway as a preacher wrongly, that we even know what the word Gentile means. Some of you may be saying, well, what's a Gentile? I've heard it all my life and nobody's explained it. Gentile. Gentile is a non-Jewish person. Most everybody in here, not everybody, there's some people with Jewish blood in their veins here, but most people in here are non-Jewish. We're Gentiles. The word, English word Gentile is translated from the Latin word gentilis, which is translated from the Hebrew word goyim. 
So when you read in scripture about uh, God talking about people that were not Jews, they were called goyim. That's the Hebrew word that you read in the Old Testament. But it's translated into peoples and often translated into Gentiles because it was translated into Latin as Gentilis. So there you go. Not that all that matters, really. But a Gentile is a non-Jewish person. They were polytheistic. You know what that means? They believed in many gods. The Jewish people believed in one God, the God of Israel. They were wicked people. They sacrificed children to false gods. They did all kinds of wicked things that God had said not for the children of Israel to do. In fact, God said, don't you even intermarry with the Gentiles. Be separate from the Gentiles because I'm going to work through you Jewish people, the nation of Israel, so that the Gentiles will know what it's like to have a relationship with a one true God. So stay away from the Gentiles. And that's what they did. And they, and they developed what God did not intend. They developed an animosity towards one another. And a hatred for one another. Another word for Gentile, another way that goyim word is translated is heathen. You heard that word before. You've probably called your children that before. Quit acting like a bunch of heathen. Well, heathen was another translation of the word Gentile. That's how it's translated sometimes as heathen. The Jews called the Gentiles heathen. But here Jesus went across the border into heathen territory. Because whether you're monotheistic or polytheistic, whether you're a Gentile or Jew... Jesus is not so concerned about unclean ceremony, unclean hands. He's, worried, he's concerned about unclean hearts. And all people have unclean hearts before God. So here's really the main thrust, I think, of this passage of Scripture. I hope we see as we unfold it. A heart that is not far from God is full of faith in Jesus. A heart that is not far from God is full of faith in Jesus. In Jesus. Two things I want to say about this passage of Scripture. Number one, Jesus gives more than crumbs to the heart full of faith. Jesus gives more than crumbs to the heart full of faith. So Jesus goes into Gentile territory and he gets there and look who's coming in verse 22. What's your Bible say? Look who's coming. It says a Canaanite woman came out from that region. A Canaanite woman. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know about the Canaanites. They were the people that lived in that land of Israel before the Gentiles ever went there, before the Jews ever went there from out of Egypt, right? And God said, dispel the Canaanites. Wipe out the Canaanites. The Canaanites were this wicked, heathen, Gentile people. And here's one of the Canaanites coming out from Tyre and Sidon to meet Jesus. And what is it that she's wanting? Well, if you look in your Bible in verse 22, it'll tell you. She wants her daughter to be healed. Her daughter is being tormented by a demon. We talked in Sunday school this morning. There were some testimonies this morning about brokenness. Well, this woman was experiencing brokenness. Something was wrong with her daughter. She said a demon was tormenting her daughter in some way. That's all the detail we have. And there's three interactions that Jesus has, and they're very interesting interactions in the way Jesus responds. Because normally when somebody comes to Jesus, he heals immediately. But does that happen in this passage of Scripture? Is that what happened when we read the verses a while ago when you heard them read? No. Three interactions Jesus has. First of all, the woman comes and, and, she's, and she's begging and she's pleading. You can just see her coming. Have mercy on me, O Lord, O son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But what's the Bible say? How did he respond? Silence. What? Is this? The, that seems rather cruel of Jesus. Silence. 
Then, she, then the disciples come because this woman left and then she began to evidently beg the disciples, please, please, please have your master hear me. Or if you can heal my daughter, please do it. And so the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, please send her away. Now, we may think that meant, Jesus, please get rid of her, but I think what it means is, if you read his response, it's, Lord, please heal her daughter so she will be, go away. Please send her away because how does he respond? What's he say? He says, I've been sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's saying to the disciples, I've not been sent to heal people like the Gentiles. I've been sent to the Jews. So, so I, it's not, I, I'm, not, I'm not going to heal somebody that's a Gentile. Well, wow, that's an interesting response too. So third interaction, here comes the woman again. While evidently Jesus is still talking with the disciples, falls down on her knees and is pleading for her daughter again, Lord, help me, she says. Lord, help me. And how does Jesus respond? He calls her a dog. He says, it's not right for me to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. Now, would any of you feed your dogs instead of your kids? Well, I hope not. You'd be in trouble in a heartbeat. People find out about that. And Jesus is saying, it's not right to feed dogs, feed your dogs instead of your kids. And Jesus said, was saying, you're a Gentile. You're a dog. You're unclean. I didn't come for you. It's not right for me to do this. My goodness, what in the world is going on in this passage of Scripture? This doesn't sound like the Jesus that we know. The Jesus that loves everybody. But I think on closer examination, perhaps we'll see that. But I think what's happening here is really a, a contrast is being set up. You remember the Pharisees that went from Jerusalem 114 miles, three or four days maybe, all the way walking to see Jesus, and they complained about unclean hands when they got there? Now, you know what happened? When Jesus called them hypocrites, they fell on their knees and they said, Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. Is that what happened? If that's what your Bible said, throw it away because it don't say that. They got mad. Verse 12 says the disciples came. What's it say? How does they respond in verse 12? What's your Bible say? They were offended. They weren't contrite. They weren't humble. When he said, your heart's far from me, from God, but you draw near to me, lift you, you're hypocrites, you, you, you break God's word for the sake of your tradition. He says it twice. He says, listen, you're hypocrites, and they are offended. You see the contrast being set up? Here are the religious leaders that represent the Jewish people that have come, that he's come for. He's been sent to, I've been sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They're recipients of the Old Covenant. They've received much special revelation that Gentiles have not. They've seen God work in ways they haven't. They have access to Scripture that the, many Gentiles don't. But they totally reject Jesus. So now he's going outside Jewish territory into Gentile territory. Here comes this woman, and I believe a contrast is being set up intended for us to see here. Because look at the woman and how Jesus responds to the woman. 
and how she responds to him. Is she offended? Is the Canaanite woman offended? Are you listening? Are you looking at your Bible? Are you paying attention? Is the Canaanite woman offended? She is not. In fact, she agrees with what he says. Look at your Bible. Look, look, look at your Bible there in verse uh, 27. She said, yes, Lord. See that? He just called her a dog, basically. And she said, yes, Lord. It wouldn't be right to do that. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Just even the dogs will wait around. Even, even a, a master will let the dogs eat crumbs, if a, a merciful master. And she's, uh, she's saying, you, you're, you're a merciful master. You, you would do this. And again, for the second time, she calls him Lord. The Pharisees never said, Son of David, which is a term for you are the Messiah, the promised king. And he says to her, listen, be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. But for that, Jesus answered her, O woman, first part of verse 28, O woman, great is your faith. A heart that's not far from God is full of faith in Jesus. And this is the contrast that's being set up. Their hearts are far from him. He's saying, oh, great is your faith. He just said to the disciples after he walked on the water and got into the boat, and Peter had doubted, he said, oh, you of little faith. But he says to a dog, a Gentile, a heathen, he says, great is your faith. A heart that is full of faith is not far from God, a heart full of faith in Jesus and her daughter was healed instantly. I think there's some application that can be made in relation to what Jesus is doing here. Because I think what Jesus is doing in responding this way to the woman is he's drawing out the faith, the nature of this woman's faith to expose it to the disciples, to show the disciples this is what great faith is. And so when we think about church camp and professions of faith, or we think about our children coming to us and talking to us about baptism, or a friend at work that's wanting to know about the gospel, and we're trying to, to discern whether or not there's true saving faith there, whether they've really grasped the gospel and trying to be responsible. I'm so thankful for our adults and the health of that church camp, from my experience anyway, from what I've heard, that they seek to be very wise and not manipulative in the decisions that are being made in professions of faith. So what kind of questions could we ask to draw out the nature of someone's faith? Well, I don't suggest calling them a dog, all right? Let's keep it in context here. But here's three things based on what we see. Number one, persistence. Is there persistence? Now, that don't mean a person has saving faith. But this one was certainly persistent. But not only is she persistent, her persistence was a persistent childlike faith because she's persistent. She's persistently trusting that he can do this. Jesus can do this. I can trust him. I can rely upon him. I don't know that this one, what's going on here is intended to be a picture of how to draw out someone's faith for us in relation to evangelism, but I certainly see that this woman's faith, great faith, served as a bridge to heal her daughter and how it can show us the kind of faith that's necessary to serve as a bridge to receive salvation. And her faith was a persistent childlike trust. So I think it's good to, to, to ask that of people we deal with and, and talk to about the Lord. 
Is there a persistent childlike trust? Secondly, profession. Profession. Professing truth about Jesus is what I mean. What is this person saying about Jesus, right? One of the first things I say when somebody wants to talk to me about Jesus or about being saved or baptized is, tell me what you believe about Jesus. It all starts with Jesus. Is this person orthodox? Do they have a right understanding of who Jesus is? Well, of course, as I told somebody yesterday, the devil believes that too. The devil believes that Jesus is the Son of God. He's orthodox. He rightly says who Jesus is. He rightly professes that Jesus is the King. He knows it. He hates it, but he knows it. So again, that's an important question to ask, but it's not the deciding, discerning factor either. But if the person says Jesus is less than God, he's less than the Son of God, they're not sure, then they're, they don't have saving faith. You can be guaranteed that. Third question is posture. What's the woman's posture? Well, you say, well, she came and knelt down on her knees. We're not talking about physical posture here. What is the woman's posture? She has a humble posture towards God, towards Jesus. She is not offended, right? She agrees. She confesses who she is in relation to God's salvific plan. She has a humble posture before Jesus. And I think in helping us understand what that might mean for our discussions with those who've made professions of faith, does this person have a humble posture before Jesus? Are they broken over their sin? Are they sorry that they've sinned against God? Are they sorry that sin's causing problems in their life? Sure. But are they sorry that this brokenness is because of sins that they've committed in their own life toward God? These are not, that's not an easy thing to discern always. Sometimes it's more obvious than other times. But it's something that we need to ask Ask about desires of the heart. Is there a humble posture towards Jesus, a, a willingness to turn from sin and, and to follow Christ? Well, keep those things in mind. That's not an end-all, be-all, those three questions, but there are three things that I saw here that I think are helpful for us to remember in drawing out the true nature of someone's faith. What happens at the end of verse 28? What happens to the woman's daughter? She's healed instantly. And what I want you to understand is what uh, Jesus gives more than crumbs to those who have a heart full of faith. She, he had said, she had said, you know, even, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off the master's table. He doesn't give her crumbs. He does exactly for this Gentile woman, even though he asked her questions and kind of held her off for a while, right? But when it comes right down to it, she receives instantly just what the same type of things Jesus did for the Jewish people. Instantly. She don't get crumbs. She don't get leftovers. She gets the exact same thing the Jews get. Now, this is important. Those who have a heart full of faith receive more than crumbs. No matter who you are, whether you're a Gentile, whether you did this yesterday or did that last week, or this is your family background, or all these things are in your, your, your past, or whatever it is, you come to Jesus with a heart full of faith, you get more than crumbs. You get everything. You get him. So there's a bigger picture here than, than, than what we might initially see that takes place after the pleading of the Canaanite woman. There's two more episodes here, and I'm going to go through them real quick. Where does he go next? He says he goes to the Sea of Galilee, goes back to the Sea of Galilee, remember? About walking from here to Henderson, Kentucky, about 50 miles. He walks back. He goes there, does a miracle, and walks back. 
And when he gets there, you look in verse 29 through 31. What does he do in 29 through 31? What's he do, folks? Same thing he's always done. He's, he's healing people. He's, he's causing the blind to see. He, the, the deaf, they can hear now. Uh, the lame, they can walk now. And how are the people responding? Same way they've always responded. People are, people are they're, they're, they're just amazed. So you might say to yourself, why is that even in the Bible? Because we've seen that over and over and over in the book of Matthew itself. Same thing we always see. Why the repetition? What's the big deal about telling us that he did this in Galilee? Because we've heard it before. It's because of who he does it for. Because in this portion of Galilee is where the Gentiles live, I believe. And commentators are in wide agreement over that. You notice the response at the end of verse 31? Who do these people give glory to? And what do they say? They give glory to the God of Israel. That would be a strange thing to say about Jews giving glory to the God of Israel. It's never used that way in relation to the Jews. Glories give glory to God. That's their God. These people are giving glory not to their many gods, not to their false gods. They're giving glory to the God of Israel. So the picture here is, is that he's in, he's in that portion of Galilee. Historically, you can look this up and, all right, where Gentiles live, he's, he's in Gentile territory inside Jerusalem or inside Israel, but where the Gentiles live. But he's doing the same things for them that he had done for the Jews. And they're giving glory to the God of Israel. Then, what happens next? He feeds 4,000. You say, well, we've heard this before too. Well, 5,000 people in chapter 14. Verse 13 through 21, I think, is where you can find it. He feeds 5,000. 5,000 Jewish people on the Jewish side of Galilee, but now he's on the Gentile side of Galilee. There's 4,000 men plus women and children. He does the same thing. He does the same thing. He feeds them miraculously. And if you don't think they're two separate incidents and just repetition, look at verse 9 and 10 to chapter 16 where he talks to the disciples and he says to them in verse 9 and 10, well, how come you don't believe what I'm telling you? Weren't, weren't you listening when I talked to you about the 5,000? Well, just the 4,000 got fed just now. That's what he says in verse 9 and 10 basically. It's clear it's two separate incidents. So don't some, let some wishy-washy liberal scholar tell you, well, this is just an accidental repetition of something that already happened. No, it was two separate incidents. One was to a Jewish crowd. One was to a Gentile crowd. And the Lord Jesus Christ is, is showing us that he came for people that have a heart full of faith in Jesus, whether they're a Jew or a Gentile or not. He's not so concerned about unclean hands and ceremonially clean people because all people have unclean hearts. Their hearts are far from God. What he's concerned about is a heart being right with God. And he came for everybody. Praise God for Israel. Praise God for the Jewish people. They're the, they're the chosen nation, the chosen people through whom these blessings come to the Gentiles. But it don't stop with them, amen? So the big picture again is that Jesus is doing for the Gentiles what he'd done for the Jews. When Jesus healed the Canaanite woman, when he healed her daughter and gave her more than crumbs, it's not because he had extra bread. So I've got extra bread here, and I'll give, I'll give this Gentile one some extra bread. I'll give her some crumbs. He has an abundance of bread. He always has an abundance of bread. Bread meaning the capacity to heal in that context. And even more so, if you read in John chapter 6, he says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread that came down out of heaven. You eat from me, you'll have eternal life. He is an abundance of bread. 
and no one gets leftovers if they come to Christ. There's 12 baskets of bread left over when the feeding of the 5,000. That could refer to the 12 tribes of Israel. Some people think. There's seven baskets left over when the nations are being fed here in this chapter. Seven baskets left over. Maybe if that was to remind us of the number of completion. Then it would seem to me, and I'm not sure this is what Scripture intends, but I know this is true, that if the 12 baskets left over for the Jews and that feeding of the 5,000 represent the 12 nations, then God is saying, I've got plenty of bread for every single person in Israel. And if the number seven, and I'm not sure what Scripture intends this either, but the number seven, which often does mean the number of completion, and there's seven baskets left over for the feeding of the 4,000, then it reminds us that there's enough bread and enough eternal life for every single person in the world that's not even a Jew. He's an abundance of bread. Jesus said in John 14, in my house are many mansions, many dwelling places, many rooms, an abundance. So two things to share with you before I close. Number one, if you come to Jesus, no matter who you are or what you've done, if you come to Jesus, he will completely satisfy your soul. Completely. You'll not get leftovers. He will completely satisfy your soul. Amen? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Has the Lord satisfied your soul completely? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Sometimes it takes going to church camp for a few days to be reminded of that where we're cut off from the constant bombardment of the pleasures of the world and remind ourselves Man, I've got Jesus. I don't need nothing else. If you come to Jesus, he will completely satisfy your soul. And that's one of the points here. No matter who you are, what you've done, or what kind of blood's going through your veins, Jewish or Gentile. As Craig Blomberg said, Jesus is the bread of life for all the world. I love this quote from John Piper that I saw posted on social media a while back. Jesus is not a ticket out of hell. Jesus is not a ticket into heaven. Jesus is not a ticket Jesus is a treasure. You come to Christ, you'll find he's a treasure that can satisfy your soul. He's worshiped and glorified in the joy of those who trust him. And as Piper says in his book about let the nations be glad, missions exist because worship does not. People are not worshiping God. They don't see that he's a treasure. They may want a ticket out of, he out of, heaven, out of hell and a ticket into heaven, but don't see that he's a treasure. People are not worshiping God and enjoying God and glorifying God, and they're in their brokenness trying to fill it with something else, and Jesus is the one that brings joy, and he's worshiped and glorified in it. Therefore, missions must exist. So number one, if you come to Jesus, he'll completely satisfy your soul. Secondly and finally, if you have come to Jesus, then go to the nations. That's the picture of the original audience here in Matthew. Matthew's writing to primarily a Jewish audience. That's because there's so many quotes from the Old Testament here and the word fulfills used often. And it's a reminder to the church that, that Matthew was writing to primarily made of Jewish people at the time that our commission, like it says at the end of Matthew, is to go to the nations. And if you've come to Jesus, go to the nations. Billions have not heard Billions have not believed. Billions have died and gone to hell. Yet in Jesus, there's enough bread, enough bread. In Jesus, there's enough bread to satisfy all the billions that are still alive or will be born. Do we understand that? He can satisfy every living being. 
Every living human being can be satisfied by Jesus. There's enough bread in him. But we can't force them to eat, but it's our responsibility to let them know about it. And billions have never heard anything. And some of you are looking at your phone or at your watch just waiting for me to quit talking about it. I, I ain't got anybody in mind in particular, so if you did that, you know, I'm not singling you out. There's no human nature. It's my nature too. So we've ate the bread so much. We, we're so used to the bread, and we just like, let's, let's get on out here and have lunch sometimes. You know, I, I, this is old hat to me. Well, i got to hear this again, because the only thing that's going to sustain you is nothing physical in this world, folks. It's the bread of life. And we need it every single day, especially when we meet on the first day of the week. We can't make them meet, but we've got to make sure they know about it. So here's a question for you to think about. What would God have you do differently? What would God have you do differently or keep doing presently? Because some of you are. Praise the Lord for it. To help others know about the bread of life available to them. What would you do differently or what should you just keep doing? Because some of you are discouraged in how you're trying to help other people know about Christ. What should you keep doing or start doing differently to help others know about Jesus? Listen, if you know the Lord... If you love the Lord, you need to, you're going to want other people to know about it. What are you doing? What should you keep doing? I mean, just suggest, keep praying. Keep praying. My grandma always said, put feet on your prayers, though, but keep praying. Keep giving. Many people, many, told you already, a bunch of you has got to go to church camp uh, because we have such a generous church that gives. A lot of you are upset about our southern border and immigrants coming across the border, and I'm concerned about it too. And of course, we know that our responsibility is to take the gospel to immigrants at the border or across the border for that matter, no matter who they are or what they've done. So should we load up a bus and drive to the border tomorrow? Who's going to go with me? All right. What are we going to do when we get there, though? I have no clue. I'm going to walk over to the border and I don't know what I'm going to do. But you know what? There are a ton of missionaries through the North American Mission Board that know exactly what to do and are doing it right now. I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't go to the border or wherever else. But what I'm telling you is, if we want people to know about this bread who never heard of it, we need to give for those who have been sent like those on the North American Mission Board. And so when you gave money this morning, 10% of our church budget goes to the cooperative program, and some of that helps fund the North American Mission Board and the International Mission Board, who know exactly what to do, whether that's at the border or in Bosnia or in Argentina or in parts of the world, we can't even tell you where they're at because it's so dangerous. So keep giving sacrificially so that others might know. Consider scholarshiping some of the students in our church. You saw all these young people up here this morning? It's part of my vision as your pastor that every single young person in here would have an opportunity to go on an international mission trip. Consider scholarshiping some of these students. I know it's not for everybody, just like church camp's not for everybody, but it's still my vision. Like everybody ought to be able to do it, if they want to especially. Consider scholarshiping somebody. It's expensive. To go to Bosnia or Argentina maybe or, or maybe somewhere else they feel led while they're still in high school or shortly after high school. And let them, let them at least get a heart. They may not end up being a missionary overseas, but, even, but a better missionary right here where God's called them. Right? So consider doing that. And finally, keep going. We had the three circles of evangelism training this morning. Matt did a wonderful job teaching the class. 
One of the things he shared was to listen and recognize for, for people's brokenness and then, then affirm. You know, I, uh, he broke up the, the, the class and groups and said, now, now practice just saying, you know what, I, that, that must be really hard. So I talked to two of the Griffith boys and I, I told them what my problem was. I said, my kids are driving me crazy. And they turned around and I said, that must really be a bummer. That's, that's their, that's their uh, empathetic response, Matt. That must be a bummer. So I'm going to remember that. If you don't know what else to say, just, that must be a bummer. <laughs> but listen, we've been sent. Listen. Listen for brokenness. Listen to people's conversations. is an opportunity to share what the solution to that is, which is the gospel. Participate in the missions day this Saturday. You say, some of you say, oh, that's nice. They're doing that. They're doing that. No, you're doing that. We're doing that together. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, you are. <laughs> Keep going. Students, listen for a moment. I want you to consider, whether it's while you're still in high school or right after you graduate, while you're in college, some of you in college, consider giving up a whole summer to go to the mission field, maybe in North America somewhere or maybe internationally, a whole summer. And see how God uses that in your life. Do it, while, do it while you have time, while you don't have some of the commitments you're going to have later in life. I want you to really seriously consider, I'm just trying to plant a little seed for that now. Maybe you're 12 years old, and, that's, and maybe that's way off in the distance. I don't know for you, but listen, think about it. There's a program called the Fusion Program at Midwestern Seminary where they train you like in boot camp for several weeks, and then they, get, then they commit for a whole year, these young people right out of high school, and for a whole year, they go to the mission field and serve in different places in the world. Man, that'd be awesome for some of you to participate in that if the Lord led you. Or consider studying abroad. You're going to college. Maybe you should go to college in London. So that'd be expensive. Well, God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He can provide. We've got a generous church. Just do what God tells you to do and trust Him to provide. You're retired. Consider taking six months and helping a, going on a mission trip with an international missionary overseas. IMB will help you do that, the International Mission Board. You're still in the workforce? Maybe you could do what you're doing right now. Maybe you could do it overseas somewhere and build relationships with people that's never heard about Christ. I don't know what the Lord's telling you. I'm just trying to plant a few seeds this morning to help us remind ourselves, man, if we've been satisfied with the bread of life, we ought to be willing to just gush over on others right here where we live. And there's many people that don't even know about it in other places in the world. Let's bow our heads in prayer this morning. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your sending of your son who is the all-soul-satisfying treasure that he is. Forgive us, Lord, that, that our hearts become dull and used to it, used to the gospel. It's just an awful thing to even utter. Lord, help us to love you more. I do thank you again for the, uh, uh, the means of church camp and other opportunities that we have, um, even meeting on Sundays like this, to just, just be stirred by the truth again so that we don't come, become dull and cold and, and not on fire for you. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here that, that has never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, Oh, God, I pray that they be convicted of their sin. And you'd grant a real, 
true saving faith. Show them, show them that, Lord, we ask. And it's in Jesus' name I pray.